Welcome back and happy holidays for those of you that have been celebrating Christmas or any other holiday taking place. We also had a little vacation here at Left Porch since we've been going for finals and finals at our college have been, I would say, just a bit stressful, a bit more stressful than I've expected them previously to be. So they took a bit more time to finish, they took a bit more preparation and they didn't really leave me with too much time actually to record and edit those podcasts. Truth to be told, I recorded a bunch of episodes, so we still have them waiting to be produced, and I'm still working on them. So, in the next weeks, expect some more. Expect some more about video games. Expect some about uh, critics of Nazism and socialism, and so many others waiting ahead of you. I would also like to say a little bit about 2020, which has been definitely an unpredictable year for all of us. Uh, it has been a year of, let's say, loss of discontinuement of pain of grief of happiness of i don't know realizations there are many ways in which we can describe 2020 but one way i think in which i try to think about it is it's been a year of growth and a year of realizations and especially realizing that we as human beings don't necessarily have a very stable foundation underneath our feet and that's something that it's quite painful to actually accept I think it's painful to accept because of the ideology through which we are living, saying that everything in this world is meant to be safe, it's meant to be comfortable, it's meant to be everything for the humans and only think of the humans first. But look, there is a pandemic going on right now and when the pandemic is going on right now we realize that our supremacy in the world, as we sometimes like to think about it, can be very easily threatened and we should think of ourselves as mortal beings, as people that live in a very unstable situation but also use the instability to try to make it better for everyone because we cannot just justify going out there and purely purely just taking advantage of it for our own selfish interest just saying oh it's unstable so if i don't enjoy today tomorrow it will be gone now we should actually take advantage of it and say if today the people are not let's say in full in a full good state and tomorrow what will they be into so yeah, I hope this is a bit optimistic. Thank you so much for all the support for Left Porch. This started as a project between Micah and I at Left Porch, and we've deeply enjoyed doing this. And I'm very much eager to see where this will be taken next year, and I'm very much looking forward to producing more episodes for you. Thank you so much, and now it's time to enjoy the episode. So hello, my name is um, Dr. Jamie Woodcock. Um, I work as a senior lecturer uh, at the Open University in, uh, in the UK. Um, and I do research, broadly speaking, on work. Um, I've had a number of different projects, um, looking at call center work, uh, the gig economy, Uber drivers, delivery careers, uh, cleaners, um, And over the last couple of years, I've been doing research with video game workers. Um, A lot of the research that I do is collaborative research. Um, Mm -hmm. So it often involves talking to workers about their work, um, but not only just to to talk to people about their work, but to understand how they're trying to change their work um, and hopefully support them in changing their work. Um, So I do a lot of research and organizing with uh, a trade union in, in the UK, called the IWGB, which is the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain. Um, 
who started off organizing cleaners in universities, um, but now organize lots of different workers, including Uber drivers, delivery couriers, uh, and most recently video game workers. Um, so this is the union that, that uh, video game workers started in the UK. And uh, the, the book that I wrote, Marks at the Arcade, uh, comes out of that experience. Um, so, you know, I grew up playing video games. My, my dad is a software engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had often thought about writing about video games. Um, but given most of my research is about organizing and about these kind of immediate questions of like how do workers build power? How do they transform things? The, the video game writing took a bit of a backseat, I guess you could say. Um, and then we met some, some workers in the UK. We started helping them organize. Uh, and I thought, you know, if now is not the time to write about Marxism and video games, like when, when would a good time be? Uh, and so a lot of that story of the first steps of organizing uh, is kind of the backbone of the book in a way, um, of making sense of how people make video games, under what conditions, um, and telling some of their story about how they, how they got organized. Well, that's such a relevant, I think, story to to discover and uncover as well. Because, like in your experience, do you think that people usually think of the people behind video games? Because from mine, I think that's usually just the customer relationship to the finished product. Yeah, I mean, I think lots of video game consumers think about the company that makes the game. You know, so they think about a company they like or a company often that they don't like. Um, but the actual stories of the people that make games, I think, are really hidden. Um, and in the oh, book, right. I talk about this kind of example of like, you know, if you sit down in front of a console and you turn it on, you know, you, you load up the game you want to play. Like if you were to imagine how many different people had to be involved, not only in the country yeah. you're in, but across the world for you to get to that moment where you can jump into a game is kind of the whole, whole range of hidden labor going on there. Mm-hmm. It's very fascinating. It's I'm not sure if I'm using the word right, but it seems to be like alienation in, in the sense like you're completely alienated from the production process. You have no clue what's going on. And I think quite often when people think of video game, at, at least in my little communities and people that produce them, it's usually just, yeah, the company or the lead directors and everyone else is like, yeah, whatever, they do some things at the company, but they might be the most crucial ones, like the factory workers in China at Foxconn or in India. Without those, there, there won't be the platforms to function on. Exactly. And, you know, I think this is what I, I was going to say what I like about video games. Obviously, what I like about video games is playing video games. But what I also <laughs> like about video games is as a commodity, so like as a product, video games tell us a lot about how production has changed. You know, from the studios in the global north, so as you say, the, the factories in the global south or, or, or increasingly spread around is that that process of making a video game like sums up a whole load of different parts of contemporary production and help us mm-hmm. to kind of unpick how capitalism works today. Oh, that's very fascinating. But before we like dive into what precisely are video games, I'm very curious to maybe hear a little bit about how production has changed in video games from what you've noticed, because I'm, I'm relatively young, so I... I came across them, I think, only when the big corporate money was on them. So I do not know if there was like something behind that. Or So I think video games have changed a lot. Um, and, you know, part of my frustration sometimes with reading stuff about video games is people still talk about it as a new industry. 
that this is a new phenomenon. But, you know, the video games industry has been going for half a century. You know, there's a, a long history of video games now. And I think, you know, what's interesting about it is like the early history of video games is one of people making games when they should have been doing something else at work. Um, so working on military computers, they're meant to be planning missile trajectories or whatever, and they like found a way to play to play games. So there's this kind of radical history in the industry that obviously when people with money saw that happening, they thought, you know, we could package these up and sell them to people. Um, but I think that kind of hacking impulse, you can still see in various moments in the video games industry. But I think particularly what we can see today is that video games are big business. Um, you know, look at uh, Cyberpunk, the amount of money that went into the production of that game, the advertising, the marketing. This is bigger than a blockbuster film. Um, so, you know, one of the big changes is to, uh, to, to use some uh, Marxist terminology, the centralization of capital within the industry is increasing. So there are fewer big companies that control more of the industry, uh, you know, these massive publishers and so on. And what's even, I think, more fascinating is I was talking yesterday to a friend of mine who is a bit accustomed to the gaming industry, but doesn't necessarily know the business behind of it. And he found out for me that uh, Microsoft bought Bethesda or like there have been these huge acquisitions happening. And I think Sony buys most of its like developing studios as well. And there's Sony Entertainment or whatever they call it. And it's I, I want I don't want to say it's scary, but it seems that it's a huge monopolization or a huge like cartel building in the industry, as you said. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I think a lot of this is also tied up around platformization. So the rise oh, yeah. of, of, of platforms in various ways. You know, Steam changed the video games industry fundamentally. Um, mm-hmm. you know, what began as a platform, maybe this is before your time, but Mm-hmm. What began as a platform for updating Half-Life <laughs> became, <Yeah. laughs> became the place that PC games were bought and sold. Um, but it began as something, you know, an add-on to a game to help you download patches. You know, this was a very small thing. Whereas now, mm-hmm. that platform controls, or at least used to control, a monopoly share. And you mm-hmm. now have other platforms being launched. Uh, you know, Epic Store, you know, these kinds of things being started Mm -hmm. and i think you know the purchase of bethesda is really about uh microsoft building its own platform and ecosystem um so you know that if you're a pc game player you can buy a game and you can also play it on your xbox you can stay within that ecosystem um and you know you'll buy xboxes instead of playstations you know that's that's very crazy that these things are happening right now. And and I think going back uh, to your first comment about video game industry being such a young one, you know, I, I think what we could say to those people is, if I'm not mistaken, there has been a study this year showing that the the industry might be worth around 180 billion dollars or something like this, which is an like humongous number, first of all. And I don't think that just appears overnight. And absolutely, and I think you know the pandemic is only increasing this. Um, I saw some figures the other day that, you know, the first month of the pandemic, uh, sales of video games had gone up 180% year on year from the previous month because, you know, loads (laughs) of us are working, working from home, you know, (laughs) we're playing video games instead of, instead of doing whatever else we're meant to be doing. So I think that growth is only set to continue at the moment, Mm -hmm. um, because video games are mainstream culture now. 
You know, these That's are not true. they're not a niche product. These are this is mainstream culture. That's true. And I think regardless of where you go in the world, maybe in places where there is no internet, people know some of the big titles and can name them without even playing. Like my parents have never played GTA, for example. They know it. They know it. They know Call of Duty. My dad knows Solitaire because that's what he's been playing on a on a Windows computer. But <laughs> it's interesting how they enter our language and how they become something as mundane as an apple or like a banana. They're so easy to identify. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is also down to the the huge consumer marketing spend that happened. I mean, I can't go on my phone today without seeing adverts for Cyberpunk. Like, you know, like every time I open something, it's like, oh, here's another advert. You know, it's really (laughs) everywhere, hey? And on the bus stops and buses and, you know, in the UK. Yeah, yeah, it's everywhere. Um, oh my god! So Cyberpunk 2077 advertisements for it in the buses. Well, actually, I mean, I've said that maybe a bit too quickly because <laughs> we're still in lockdown here, so I actually have no idea what's on the buses. But you know, major game releases in the UK, you have what? big adverts on bus stops and buses for them now. Wow, um, I didn't know of that. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, you know, I live in such a small community, so we don't really have adverts on bus stops, but that seems fascinating. But I'm very curious before we dive a bit deeper, because in, in the first chapters of your book, maybe even the first one, you touch on the idea of what is a video game. And there seems to be some kind of disagreement over the definition and over the phrasing of it, since I think you have touched on, on the definition of video games as two separate words, video games as one linked word, and video games with a little hyphen in between. Uh, what, what would be like your favorite definition, or would you be in favor of having multiple ones? And if so, why? Yeah, I think this is a kind of interesting issue is if you think about what a book is, a novel, mm-hmm. or you think about what a film is, we have quite a clear sense of what a film is. You know, oh, there yeah. might be short films, you know, indie films or blockbuster films, mm-hmm. but like we know what a film is. There, there's a lot of disagreement on what constitutes a video game. Um, and in the in the book, I kind of try and use that to draw out some of the, the tensions around how we think of video games and what, what we consider to be a video game or not. Um, but I think at its core, and I think this is useful for thinking a bit about what we can do with games or can't do with games, is video games are a rule-based system mm-hmm. with some kind of you know, audio-visual uh, representation to go with it but i think that rule-based system thing is really important um because video games naturally have constraints to them you know they are rule-based systems um but beyond that you know some people get really argumentative that like a video game has to have a storyline or a narrative or like it has to have victory conditions or it doesn't is ultimately i think it doesn't really matter like if you're playing it it's you know it, it counts as a, a, a as a video game if it fits those those kinds of constraints if that makes sense that's very fascinating i think especially on the rule-based system because we have the tendency or we have i think i might have identified within myself with open world games to think of them as infinite possibilities in there but it seems to me that the computer and the developers still want you to pursue a certain path and will make sure that you are on this path yeah, and I guess ultimately they're rule-based systems because the code that is used to write them is rule-based. Um, you can okay. have incredibly complicated rules mm-hmm. that give you the impression of an open world where you can do anything, but ultimately it comes down to 
video games involve someone writing a piece of code or often hundreds of thousands of millions of pieces of code and it creates that experience that you can you can play with um, but when you boil it down there are rules involved you know much like with mm-hmm. traditional kinds of games you know and there's a long debate about like what counts as a game or not or you know how formal does it have to be how informal and i think in a sense the fact that those definitions have grown so much is a sign of the maturing of video games in a way you know are mobile games do they count as games you know is it just con- you know there's a kind of you start to <laughs> yeah. carve up like what people think good games are that's really what the debate is about no yeah, that's that's very fast. I think people usually touch upon only the surface, as I said, like or the console wars. You know, is a PlayStation game superior than the Xbox? And there will be so many people arguing against this. Mm-hmm. But in in its essence, I think it's if I can make a a Marxist reference, is what Adorno would call it. You know, maybe culture industry at its core, they're the same, but they're just packaged differently with the same intention. And with this idea, I want to touch. You said about maturing video games. I'm very curious if in your vision, maturing means them becoming more corporate, more business-like, or and like entering the production scheme as some traditional companies such as the coal industry or, I don't know, the steel industry have been for a long time? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I guess I think of maturing as being there are well-established mm-hmm. areas of video games in across a whole range of genres and topics and themes and so on. Um, mm-hmm. Both, you know, the massive multi-million selling sports franchise games on consoles all the way to like the niche storytelling game made in 8-bit that's released on itch.io you know there's like there's the Mm -hmm. whole scheme of things and I guess that's what I mean by maturing is people have experimented with many many different ways to make and play games that we now have you know you can't say like a video game is x singular thing because there are there are like a whole range of things they can be, you know. That's very true. That's, but I'm also very curious on how the industry has evolved because I think in your book you touched upon uh, Pong, which mm-hmm. was developed by Atari, if I'm not mistaken. And it seems to me in the beginning that Atari has capitalized in, on this identity of the counter worker. If I get it right, like people didn't necessarily want to subscribe to the time the timesheet is seven nine to five and wanted to do more alternative things but in the end those people were taken to the corporate world and molded into a subject of their own do you feel that this is still happening or yeah i mean i think this is the tension of creative mm-hmm. work in a way um is it's really difficult to manage creative work mm-hmm. um to like say you must come in at 9 a.m start being creative you know, take your lunch, stop being creative, come back, be creative. There's uh, there's always that tension, I think, that runs through the video games industry of like, people want to make money from it. So they buy studios, they invest in advertising and so on. Um, But you also need to give workers creative freedom um, Mm -hmm. in order to produce things. Um, And so I think you get these tensions with Atari, but also you get Mm -hmm. these tensions with contemporary companies of you know, GTA, Rockstar love to position themselves as a countercultural company. Mm. You know, GTA is full of strange postmodern references and mm-hmm. critiques of capitalist culture. But then it's also like a multi-million pound company that makes huge <laughs> profits, you know. But the, the fact that tension runs through it, I think, said something interesting about the longer history of the industry. 
That's very true. Actually, just on the GTA 5 line, I think at the beginning when... Have you played GTA 5 by any chance? If you remember, there's Michael on the on the bench, one of the main characters, and there's Lamar with Franklin, the other character coming, passing by. And they ask for Bertolt Beach House, and I think that's a reference to Bertolt Brecht. And I, I really like that. I don't know. That was so funny for me to hear in the beginning. Yeah, and you know, there are lots of, you know, it's a pastiche of many... Hollywood films and you know there are critiques of you know in a sense there's some critiques of alienation in there and critiques of commodity mm-hmm. production um but yeah ultimately Rockstar are a corporate you know huge corporate company that are ex- squeezing workers through unpaid overtime and exploiting people all over the place but I think it's interesting that they still want to present themselves that way you know that's very true. It seems to me as the same the case with CD Projekt Red. I mean, they've just launched, uh, what, Cyberpunk maybe three or four or five days ago to the public. And it's a game full of anti-capitalist references. It's like it's overfilling at this point. And there's such a criticism of AI, of technology invading our public lives, our private spaces. But at the end of the day, we know that the founders of it are billionaires right now. And I think from the store, I was actually talking to Declan Peach from GWU, now IWGB Games workers unite i think it, it's a complicated name but he's part of iwgb and he was telling me about how basically they pose themselves as kind of cultural but they as you said they exploit workers beyond like words and at the end of the day yeah they might have a product that has countercultural elements but this production was very much tied to i don't know very bad corporate practices yeah and i think you know they also it's not just that they had bad practices which is bad mm-hmm. enough but they also promised repeatedly publicly that they wouldn't mm-hmm. use uh overtime crunch oh yeah over and over again and then lo and behold it turns out that it had been happening for years already and then hugely in the run-up to the launch so you know i, I you know i think there's a, a an impressive ability for capitalism to attempt to absorb critiques of capitalism and mm-hmm. sell them back to people um and this is not new in the video games industry, hey? Film, you know, there are many, many films riffing on anti-capitalist themes that, you know, made a load of money and exploited lots of people, you know. That's very true. It's not like this is the case, but I'm very curious as well, before we dive into Marxism and video games, when it comes down to production and when it comes down for example producing cyberpunk or other games as such what is maybe besides crunch what is an uh, and certain story has besides crunch like what is one of the justifications people have been using to justify crunch has it been that it's as you said creative work or that it's something because for example i was reading i think this speech this piece by i forgot the name this like someone in the gaming industry saint john's i'm sorry i just remember the name in which he justified crunch because it's art and he completely took games out of the production process and he said that they're just art. You should be grateful for doing this. If you don't like it, go find your own company. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a kind of a common argument that, that people use that, you know, you're passionate about this work. So yeah. why wouldn't you want to work 100 hours a week on the thing that you're passionate about? <laughs> um, but I think the other evidence points to, I mean, you know, there have been studies in the games industry that show that crunch on almost every indicator produces a worse product. Um, you know, oh. it's, it's rushed. Uh, it has more bugs. There's more unhappiness. Like it is just a bad practice. 
And so you then have a bit of a problem of like, if it's a bad practice, why does it happen so much? Um, and I don't know if you've read uh, Nick Dyer Witherford and Greg Deputer's uh, Games of Empire, but they have oh, a really reading through it actually. Uh, it's yeah, a great, it's a really really good book. Um, and what Nick and Greg say in the book is, you know, crunch becomes this like emergency thing that people claim they have to do because they're going to miss a deadline or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when you start seeing crunch over and over again, it starts mm-hmm. to look less like an emergency procedure. You know, mm. if every game is crunching, you have to ask yourself, like, why has this happened? And it's because, as they say, for management, it's a really good deal. Like, mm-hmm. if you have to pay workers for an extra year or an extra six months to not crunch, that's a huge additional extra cost. Whereas if you say, we'll shorten the development time and then in the run-up, we'll make people work really, really, really hard, huge long hours, you know, whatever, we'll buy them pizza and, and things <laughs> when they're working late. It's like, it's cheaper for management. It's a good deal for management to, to make people work harder uh, mm. at the end. So I think it's kind of, it's become an accepted practice. Um, and, you know, there are some examples of companies that claim not to do it. And I think, you know, there've been a number of public debates. You know, the first big one was in 2004 with the EA spouse letter. Yeah. yeah. And loads of people promised they were going to change. You know, companies said that they were going to stop doing it. And it, it, you know, it still continues. And as you mm-hmm. say, with cyberpunk, you know, this has involved a huge amount of, uh, of crunch at the end. So obviously it's making people money, you know? That's very true. And I think going back to what you said about games flopping and completely turning into like crappy products uh, because of crunch, I think Anthem might have been a clear example of this, of how Bioware overworked their employees and in the end had a product that no one really knew what it did. And I think it's, is it dead right now? Because I don't see anyone playing it, to be honest. I think so. I mean, that's a classic example of like, even when you spend huge amounts of money, you can end up with a game that is like unplayable unplayable mm-hmm. um and in a sense this is what i quite like about destiny in a way is mm-hmm. you can see moments in destiny where they clearly just had to scrap loads of the storyline because they'd mm-hmm. you know they they'd run out of time they'd gone over budget or whatever and so when you like look back over the history of destiny you can see like our ah, management screwed up here and that's mm-hmm. why like they didn't explain that bit of the story and it came back a year later as a as an expansion and then that was overworked and so they screwed it up and had to do you know you can kind of see along the production cycle yeah. these issues fascinating game would, would you recommend everyone to play destiny as a tool of like historical understanding of the production yeah i mean if that justifies spending time playing destiny then yeah absolutely <laughs> i think there might be multiple like justifications for playing Destiny. It, it just catches you i don't know it just doesn't allow you to leave unfortunately yeah and i think you know this is something that i sometimes struggle with with games is you know i like to play games but i also Mm -hmm. don't like the feeling when i know that a game is making me play more of it Um, so you know when you start to notice you're like ah that bit has been designed to make Mm -hmm. me play more um you know like for example to use destiny which you know if people don't know this will make zero sense but you know when there are unnecessary steps added to quests that are like go and collect x number of things or mm-hmm. you know go to crucible and do pvp for x number of uh, victories or whatever but mm-hmm. there's this thing at the end that's like if you just keep playing like you know you'll get this new 
new weapon or, 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 or new whatever. Um, you know, like the jumping through hoops and you kind of feel a bit mm. I'm being kind of convinced to stay, you know. Well, you've made it halfway through the episode. Thank you so much for listening and all your support means a lot to us because it's just a small team producing this of a couple of students from Bodum Labor Alliance and there is me that records the interview and most of the time edits them and publishes them as well. So please, if you enjoy the show, if you enjoy Left Watch, share them, share it with your parents, yeah, share it with your family, with everyone else that you have, with your friends, and just spread the word because it literally brings so much joy when we see people listening to our episodes and sometimes sending us messages about them because it's literally what we love to do. We love to spread the word. We love to get nice people to interview. We get we get like very excited when we make connections like those like this one with jamie woodcock and we'd love to bring more people to you like that so please support us share with the people and since it's a break don't forget to hydrate yourself lift yourself up move a little bit because in most cases because of work from home most of us might already be very let's say muscle fatigue that we haven't really moved it and we must also be dehydrated yeah go and drink some water Uh, but Jamie, I'm very curious as well in your book. Um, so you're making uh, this, you're making the call to use Marxism to understand video games, but not only video games as a product, but also the production process behind it. And since we've discussed what video games might be, I'm very curious in what way you use Marxism and what does it mean for you and why do you think it's still a relevant methodology to use? I'm, this is a big question, but let's try to unpack it from now. Like, what do you think, why, why is Marxism for you? It's a good question. It is indeed a big question. Um, yeah. I mean, in the book, I talk about uh, an example of Marx in a video game to talk a bit about why I think Marx can be useful for, for making mm-hmm. sense of video games. Um, so in, in Assassin's Creed Syndicate, uh, you get to meet a virtual Marx, um, <laughs> along with like Darwin and like a range of other historical figures. Oh, so cool. Um, and Marx gets you to do some things in the game. And I kind of use this as a jumping off point in the book to talk about Marx in video games. Because mm-hmm. when most people think about Marx, they think of like bearded old man who wrote a huge book about capitalism. It's really difficult to read. Like, what does this have to do with today or whatever? And obviously Marx has nothing to say about video games because, mm-hmm. you know, he was a bit a bit too early for them. <laughs> but in the game, he, Marx asks you uh, as the player to break into a factory and steal some factory reports. Now, the actual historical record is not the same. Um, Marx reads factory reports in from Parliament. He doesn't have uh, an assassin to send off and, and steal them and so on. But what what's interesting about it is this is a kind of bit of Marx that happens some of it goes into capital, some of it comes later in Marx's life, where he's very keen to try and connect the theorization of capital, mm-hmm. the theories of capital that he develops, with the lived experience of the working class. Um, so at one point he sends out a survey uh, to French workers asking them to talk about you know, their conditions, how they respond to them, how they're organizing and so on. And what I kind of wondered when I was playing Assassin's Creed is what would that moment of Marx calls it inquiry of like 
trying to connect the experience of capitalism to people's experience, like what would that look like in the video games industry? Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know much about the work of the video games industry. Um, and so really what I try to do in the book, at least in the first half, is to think about how Marx's ideas and theory of capitalism and concepts applies to the video games industry. So how we can kind of unpack production, um, but not just as a kind of abstract thing, but also from talking to video game workers mm. um, and talking to them about their experiences and, 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 and what they're doing. Um, and I think that strain of Marxism that is concerned with the real lived experience of people, because after all, it's people who make and remake capitalism every day, I think has an application both to think about video, the video games industry, but also to help us make sense of our lives much more broadly. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, there, it is a, a, a different strain of Marxism to what people might have come across before, of a kind of dry, uh, kind of scholarly Marxism. This is like an attempt to kind of have an active, participatory kind of engagement with the world. But it's also, that, that example with Marx is quite fascinating because I was always look. I've never played Syndicate, but I was always looking to see if there would be a little Marx in a game. And I don't know, I never experienced it, but one criticism, one criticism, one similar aspect of it that I experienced was with Mario. People have made a case that it's about the plumber, it's about the working class, the proletariat, trying to steal the lady from the capital's hand, which is this big guy. And that, that was quite funny to me. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I love I love the idea of uh, of Mario as as working class hero. Um, I think I'm not entirely sure that's the reason behind the 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 design, but we can read into these things in in a whole number of ways. Um, but you know, I think what's interesting about Assassin's Creed, I mean, you know, Marx and factory labor is like a part of Victorian London, so yeah. it kind of makes sense for them to feature him. Um, but also, you know, whenever you encounter like politics in video games, particularly left-wing politics, it's often such a like schematic version. So mm -hmm. I'm also a fan of, uh, of Civilization as a series, yeah. um, which, you know, as you as the individual player leading a, an entire society, it's obviously quite dictatorial because, you know, you make every choice. But, you know, there's always the choice to, to, to convert your government type to communism. Um, mm -hmm. And for the civilization game, that often means stuff like more grain production and more like faster tank production, you know? It's like communism becomes this like caricature of Stalinism of like yeah. the only thing you can reach for that's not capitalism is like more tanks and grain. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just to be clear, like, you know, although it would be less fun to play in civilization, right? Because my version of communism is everybody having control over their lives and a say over what they produce and how they produce it, which for the player would mean like, you know, you're, you're cut off from, from participating anymore. Uh, and the civilization <laughs> continues on its own, you know? Yeah. I, I hopefully I've, made this clear that my version of Marxism is not, not a, a, a kind of uh, reheated Stalinism or so on. But, you know, often people forget that Tetris was, was, was created in Soviet Russia. Um, that's, that's what I don't know. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was wow. created behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, it was leaked out uh, okay. and became bundled with, with, with the first Game Boy. 
Um, what? And so the person that made it, like, you know, didn't didn't get the profits from 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 the sales with Game Boy, and it's arguably like the most popular video game of all time. Um, That's true. And it was made by somebody who wasn't motivated by making money, you know. And so all this mm-hmm. idea of like, you know, if you didn't have to sell things, like where would creativity go? It's like Tetris is quite a nice example of something that was made because it was made, you know. And look where it is right now. Like I think there are, I don't know, endless versions of it coming up every year. So many pirated versions, so many like DIY versions of it. It's such a cultural phenomenon. But I'm very curious on the line of analysis of Marxism because we have this example in your book, as you said, with Marx being present in syndicate. But is there a place for a Marxist analysis when there are no clear references to historical elements of Marxism, such as having an historical Marx in games, a factory or something? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm a a big fan of trying to think through what video games criticism from the left looks like that takes video games as a cultural form seriously. So I think there's a popular discourse around video games that the left just wants to say you shouldn't play video games and you shouldn't have fun uh, Mm. and all games are bad and like violence is a bad thing. Um, And I think part of that comes across because most of the debate around video games, the left hasn't been present in. Um, You know, there's a lot of reactionary discussions around video games that have happened for a long time. And part of that is saying like that the left has like no, you know, just wants to tell you that like game video games are imperialist tools or, 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 or whatever they are. Um, but I think instead, you know, we can take seriously video games from the left. We can critique them, which I think we should, but we also have to recognize that these are things that many people spend a lot of time engaging with. So, you know, for example, uh, you know, League of Legends doesn't have Marx in it. Marx isn't a character. You know, there isn't, uh, you know, a factory production and so on. But like, we should be able to say something about the appeal, the scope, the role that League of Legends plays under contemporary capitalism. Like, why mm-hmm. so many people enjoy playing it, the dynamics involved. Um, you know, we should have something to say about these things. I think one of the difficulties, and I think this kind of goes back a little bit to a question we were talking about earlier, is video games, even online video games, we experience through our own activity. Mm-hmm. And so often the kinds of stories that are told, we are the center of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, many video games are a power fantasy. You know, you escape from the mon- mundane aspects of, of daily life to like engage in a space opera or a fantasy tale or, you know, GTA, however we can categorize that. But like, ultimately it's like our activity that changes the whole world. Um, Mm -hmm. which means that the kinds of stories that are told, you know, are often not about the mass participation of people in society. Um, that doesn't mean that they're, they're bad or we shouldn't play them, but we should think through what that means in terms of our perspective on on gameplay in the world. 
That's, that's a very good comment. I think it's it's also very much worth looking at the way we the way there is a link between society and video games because quite often we might may I, I mean it's very good to think of them as escape I think from the outside world but I think they're very much connected to the world as well not only in terms of production but also in the terms of the characters we bring into and the personalities because I witnessed myself doing that for example I've been playing Cyberpunk twenty seventy seventy for five hours right now. I've chosen corporate immediately. I just really wanted to screw some things up inside the corporation. And I've made everything in my powers possible to just screw it up. And I realized, like, I had a moment of reflection. I was like, wow, this really comes from my apathy of multinational companies. I realized it's not something that just comes randomly. It's from somewhere in society. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a longer-running debate around games that was uh, thought about as the the magic circle of game play Mm -hmm. that you like step out of the real world and into games and that's like obviously not true uh you know there is no separation between between play and the rest of the world and you know i think increasingly capitalism is finding ways to reach into more and more of our lives and it's Mm -hmm. no surprise that when we play a video game we we are affected by the things things all around us i mean one of the things i find kind of fascinating about this is the rise of of like job simulator games Okay, yeah. So like truck simulator or like, you know, there's like, uh, what do you call it? Like um, emergency service dispatcher simulator mm-hmm. or, uh, or you know, the games where you like tend a garden. You know, you do mm-hmm. like manual manual work on a garden or whatever. And I think that says a lot about like, you know, the lack of achievement that many of us feel when we go to work and we deal with Mm -hmm. shitty bosses and boring things that we're told to do or whatever that like those games provide people with like you know something that feels less alienating perhaps uh but i think it's an interesting kind of turnaround hey that like some Mm -hmm. people play games to do something very different and some people are choosing to like drive trucks around the midwest (laughs) you know I never get bored of it, actually. I was just, uh, I was listening. There is this beautiful podcast I like to make a reference. I think it was Spontaneous, or Spawn on Me is by a game journalist in the UK. And she describes how is it gaming while being a mother and emerging mother as well. And and one of the aspects she says is that I've been playing Stardew Valley for 60 hours. It's about having a farm, but I have so much, I put so much enjoyment in that because, yeah, it's separated from the outside world and it allows you to come back to it whenever you want. Because her job schedule and her child and everything doesn't allow that, so it's beautiful how it can sometimes games can look as an extension to reality. And I'm very curious how much nowadays this extension to reality would actually be even f- further developed since we have VR making itself as a very like I want I don't want to call it an emerging force because I still think it's here and it's very much relevant. But I think it's going to develop further and maybe also augmented reality. They seem to be taking this approach of games being an expansion, like to a new level. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm. I think VR is a really interesting format because mm-hmm. it's still not become a mass consumer product that's in people's homes in yeah. the way that I mean, clearly in the way that consoles or, or or screens are. And I think there's been real attempts to push it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, real attempts with. Uh, with new products to, to 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 make it cheap enough to get it into the home and so on, but the only times that I've used VR are in kind of special venues in London before the lockdown, of course, unfortunately. Um, and I think 
I mean, there's a few in London where you go and they, they've actually built a, a physical stage essentially that you walk mm-hmm. around with, with the, with the VR helmet on. And, you know, they like blow cold air on you at certain bits or there are heaters at other bits. And it's like an, it's an amazing experience. Um, and it's something that I couldn't recreate in my home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it feels like a different, there are different kinds of gameplay. So like I've been with my partner, you know, you buy a ticket, you go, and it, it feels like much more of an escape thing. You know, you step into another yeah. world, you, you do something very differently. Um, and I think those kinds of experiential games, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, if you go in London, you know, you then they, you know, you can buy a cocktail to have afterwards. You talk to people about the experience. It's like becomes more of a shared experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I'm, I find interesting about the maturing of the games industry in a way is like mm-hmm. games are no longer like the dark arcade cabinet room or like just the console at home is like, there are so many different ways that people play games, like a certain generation of people who play candy crush on, on an iPhone or an iPad. Yeah. You know, there's like kids who increasingly are socializing together on Fortnite rather than going around to each other's houses. There's like the VR experience. You can pay a premium to go to It's like Mm -hmm. all these different experiences are a different things that we should think about how games have developed, you know? No, that's that's very true. And and where would like a Marxism critique of the socialization would come in? Like where where do you see it? And how do you see it linked? Do you see it linked to the production process? How how the VR headset is assembled in China or whatever, or how they maybe like shape certain ideologies into us, like makes us believe that socializing on screens might be better, safe and easier than actually going in person. Yeah, I mean I think a lot of this is about the commodification of social spaces. Um, and it, it also says something about modern cities is, Mm -hmm. you know, people feel less willing to let their children play outside, uh, or to travel, to go to each other's homes or so on. And it's easier and feels safer to have people playing video games in an online space that they're having to pay to, to be part of. Um, but I'm very much not of the, the, the school of thought that like, screen time is a is a fundamentally bad thing and children have to be playing outside to be happy or whatever but i think it just it reshapes the way we interact with each other um and you know i'm sure lots of people can relate to the pain of zoom meetings you know like not being able to see your friends for a long time you've been on zoom all day for work then you zoom for for socializing it's like in that case i'd much rather play a video game with somebody Mm-hmm. and have a chat than have another zoom meeting you know so i think sure. it's just about you know different ways of of interacting um but of course you know as a marxist it's also about unpicking what what interests are involved mm-hmm. so you know why do Fortnite want so many people on their platform you know how are they making yeah. money what what things are they trying to push children to do when they're in that space so i think you know we can understand the changing ways people are relating to each other but also critique the fact that these are places where people are trying to make money. Mm-hmm. That's very true. So looking at games as products of material conditions of existence and production, rather than just simple like intellectual creations or things that exist in the void. But I'm also on those lines and what, you, what you've said about maybe the socialize the commodification of social space and the way Fortnite 
tries to capitalize on on people so let's say play them and all of that i wonder if for what what will be the future for this because for example right now there seems to be a pushback against in app purchases and there seems to be a push pushback from platforms such as apple arcade even though it's a small one it's quite relevant i think in the discussion because they offer the subscription service for five dollars a month and you don't get any in-app purchases you play 140 games or something like this and I'm curious if that still counts as commodification of social space or they're trying to actually push back against it. Yeah, I think um, video games have gone through a number of shifts in business models yeah. um, in terms of, you know, it's rare now that the you you buy a game with a sticker price. That's, oh, yeah. you know, you buy the box and that's it. You know, that, that model mm-hmm. of, uh, of buying video games has, has definitely transformed in lots of ways. Um, and I think there have been a number of tensions around how people pay for games, how much consumers pay, how much people who put things up on platforms pay, the the cuts that different people pay, uh, take from them and so on. Um, the example that I, I like of this particularly is one that a colleague of mine, Daniel Joseph, has written about of mm-hmm. struggles over people selling mods on Steam. Um, oh. So people who were previously you know, uploading mods, remixing other people's mods and so on. Uh, Bethesda actually uh, was involved in this because a lot of them were Skyrim mods, is trying to bring in systems to commoditize these and make people pay for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ended up with a huge backlash from the people that made these things. Mm-hmm. Um, is I think these struggles, you know, these are not the same as worker struggles. Yep. You know, these are not the same as uh, a cleaner fighting to be paid a living wage or a video game worker fighting not to have overtime, but they are struggles over, over how we consume things, how we share things and so on. So they are a part of class struggle in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think the politicization of those struggles is seeing that, you know, the, the problem here is the way we organize and run our society and that it could be done very differently. I think can spring from different places. Uh, if there is a place for politics in video games. I know this is a huge discussion. I also wrote a little article for a newspaper in my school discussing that video games are inherently political even though there is a Reagan or not in the game, even though there's a Thatch or not in the game. They have a certain political agenda. And maybe in the silence that the games show, that's where you actually find most of the things that should have been said. Mm. What do you think of this and politics? And So I'm a, a, a fan of Stuart Hall's take on on mm-hmm. politics and culture um, that, you know, culture is, is not a place where an alternative society is going to arise from, you know, like yeah. communism will not be built out of culture, but mm-hmm. culture is a place where people's ideas about the current society, about alternative futures, about consent with, with the current system and so on about ideology, where these battles for ideas can be carried out. Um, and for me, that's like Stuart Hall, like what's interesting about that is, uh, is how it can play a role in building, uh, an alternative society. Um, because if it's just a squabble over, uh, uh, over culture in and of itself, I'm, I'm not Mm -hmm. so, not so interested in that. Um, but I think because of, as you say, the critical themes that emerge in video games, the struggles Mm -hmm. over how they're made, over what kind of games we get to play, like a lot of these ideological debates, you know, helped to shape people's ideas about what's possible and what's not. And so I think mm-hmm. you're very right to say that 
politics are always involved in video games is often what people say when they say should politics be in video games is should politics they don't agree with be in video games uh, mm-hmm. you know should other people's politics be in them and i think the kind of question of how you solve you know lots of video game communities are incredibly toxic uh, yeah. have very bad politics uh exclude people uh have become in a sense a breeding ground for 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 the alt right um and for extreme right wing politics is there's a kind of question of like how on earth do you move on from that um and i think lots of people on the left have just said like this is not even worth engaging with you know this isn't a, a terrain of political struggle mm-hmm. is i think video game workers organizing begins to show us what another kind of video games industry could look like yeah is companies make a choice about the kind of communities they have the mm-hmm. kind of things that are acceptable on their uh, on their platforms and so on. The reality is lots of companies have chosen to develop these toxic communities because they buy their games. Um, whereas if you have workers say, this isn't okay, this shouldn't happen this way, we should have a say over the kind of games and the kind of communities we're constructing, you can mm-hmm. start to see what alternative, better communities could look like. But that, that has to be combined with a struggle for a different way of, of organizing society. Uh, you know, the problem isn't politics in video games. The problem is capitalism. <laughs> I like that you left us on a very positive mm-hmm. note. Uh, Jamie, thank you so much. It was such pleasure. a good pleasure talking to you. I hope we'll be able to do this in the future because there are just so many more questions. I'm so curious about streaming. I don't know anything else, but we'll give you some time. We, yeah, you we need a break and all of this, but I'll contact you again maybe for another episode in the future. Yeah, I'd be very okay. happy to. Oh, thank you so much. It means a lot, honestly. Please go buy his book, Jamie Woodcock, Mars of the Arcade. You can find all Haymarket books, if I'm not mistaken. That's the publisher and any other bookstores online. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me on. A real pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. <laughs>